Again, good morning to everyone and a blessing to be able to share God's word with you today. As I mentioned before the service, if you weren't here quite yet, we're in the last week of this series called Engage, and I'm looking forward to sharing with you uh, some words <clears throat> and from a book that we don't look at very often, the uh, Old Testament prophet Malachi. But before we get there, just a couple of things I wanted to start with. Um, first of all, if you're a guest with us, I wanted to point out that there's a colored insert in your service folder that uh, pray that if you could take just a second here to pull out and put on your lap so that you uh, can see that the, the preacher has a point and he's going somewhere. Um, and then secondly, I wanted to start, before we get into our content, um, to one more time just kind of reiterate how engagement is important. And to do that, I wanted to share something that happened to me um, a few weeks ago. Our, our family, uh, on one of these beautiful September days, went to Lake Calhoun in, in Minneapolis and uh, one of the things that we did that we hadn't done before is we rented a couple boat-type things to go out onto the lake for about an hour. So we have six people in our family, and we rented a two-person kayak, which I thought I was going to go in, but did not. And then a four-person pedal boat, which I spent the entire hour and a half in, um, which here's an example of what a four-person pedal boat looks like. Anyone ever, raise your hand if you've been in a pedal boat before. All right, now here's more of a question just to think about. How, much, how many of you really enjoyed it? <laughs> Some of you, right? Yeah, exactly. Especially if you don't want to go very far, then, then it's awesome. But um, one thing I learned on Lake Calhoun in a four-person pedal boat is this. First of all, how many seats are in a four-person pedal boat? Good, all right, you're with me. How many sets of pedals are in a four-person pedal boat? Four, yeah. Here's what I learned. That the experience is much more enjoyable, much happier, and much more just wonderful if all four sets of pedals are used during the time in your four-person pedal boat. That the experience becomes a lot less wonderful and a lot harder on one person if not everyone's engaged in pedaling but is engaged with the things around them. And I'm not going to today, especially because my family's here, I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus, okay? But I, I will say this. We got to the shore, we got out, and I was drenched with sweat, and my thighs were burning. <laughs> I looked around, and no one else was. So I'll just let you take it from there. Um, engagement by all parties in a pedal boat makes it better. It goes faster. It's just happier. One of the things we've been talking about in this series and, and kind of the main idea is that when we all engage, when everyone engages in the work of the church, you go faster. You go further. Things are better. And so over these last three weeks especially, we've been talking about three ways that you can engage, not just with your church, but as, as a Christian. 
And two weeks ago, I gave you the specific encouragement to invite someone to church over the next three weeks. I mentioned before the service next week, we're starting a, a, a series on prayer. If you haven't invited someone yet, next week would be a great way to invite them or a great week to invite them. Let them know that we're going to be studying prayer and, and uh, please take advantage of that opportunity. Last week, Pastor Matt did an awesome job of teaching us about engaging through service, and he looked at some verses that Paul wrote, and he gave us this sort of paradox. He said that, that God tells us that we have been freed to be a slave. We have been freed by Christ and to use that freedom to serve. What, what, a, what an awesome thing to think about, and what amount of joy comes... Um, to serving when we recognize we've been freed to serve. We're not required, so to speak, to serve. We've been freed to do it. Now this week, like I said, I get the, the great task of being able to teach you about your favorite topic, which is giving financially. And I'm sure that, well, I know that none of you got up this morning and said, you know what? If there's one thing I would love for Ben to preach about today, if I could choose anything, it would be how to give money church or to God. And if you're a guest with us, I know you did not go online today and do a word search, churches in Lakeville talking about money this week. And then you pick the church based on finding a church that's, that's talking about financial blessings. I know that's the case, and there's many reasons for that. One of the reasons is that there have been churches maybe in your past that have done a really bad, almost unbiblical way of talking and teaching about money. I, I, I know that that's not this church. Um, another reason that you feel that way relates to the main reason why it's good that you're here. and has nothing to do with giving. It has to do with the recognition that the way that we feel about what we have materially is an issue primarily of the heart and of our relationship with God. You see, um, I think that many of us view money as a tool not just to get by, not just to go day to day, but as almost a tool to create a certain image, a certain lifestyle, that money is used as a tool to find peace, because if you have enough pieces of green paper in the bank, then you feel more peaceful about the future. And I'm not even saying that that's a bad thing. We should plan for the future. I'm just saying that that's not the primary place you get your peace and confidence for the future about. We look at money as, as a tool to buy happiness and contentment. And yet, as you look at the world, you see how money can project who a person is. But if you were to be really honest, you know that what that money projects a person to be is not always the reality of who they are inside. That, that what you have outside is very surface level and very superficial and really says nothing about who that person really is inside. And it doesn't, even, it doesn't even really tell how happy a person is. You've probably known um, what you would consider 
very rich people. Most people in the world would consider you to be very rich people, but the funny thing is, we always want to be rich, but we never are rich. We talked about that one time. You know, we're always wanting to be rich, but you never are rich. If you look at what the world says, they say you are rich. Anyway, that's a different sermon that we already had once before. Um, but you look at people who you consider to be rich, and, and there are many of those people that aren't happy or aren't content. Maybe most. At the very same time, you know people who have less than you, and you know them to be very happy and very content. And so you know as well as I do, there is not a corollary between happiness, contentment, and the amount of money that you have. That they're just not connected. And so here's our first fill-in, which we'll then talk about in, and through Malachi. Money can project who a person is. It's not always true, but it has this projection to the people around them, who they are, what they drive, where they vacation, what they have. projects who you are, right or wrong. But it reveals truthfully, honestly, whose you are. It projects who you are. It reveals, and our relationship with what we have, reveals whose we are. Now, let me explain what that means by connecting now us to our section of Scripture. Like I said before, we're in a letter written by the prophet Malachi. It's the one that if you tried to pronounce it, you know, English-wise, it looks like Malachi, but it's really Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. And uh, Malachi was a prophet who lived about 400 years before Christ. And um, he came to the people of Israel during a time following a long imprisonment in the country of Babylon. And why were they imprisoned in Babylon? Sometimes we call it the Babylonian captivity. Ultimately, the reason was is that they could not, did not stay close to God. They would continue to fall away, worship false things, worship false idols, and, and ultimately God said, you keep doing that, you're going to be imprisoned. And they were. God in his grace allowed them a remnant to come back to Israel. Malachi came to the country of Israel, to that remnant, and after these people had experienced the captivity, the imprisonment of themselves and their ancestors, how do you think they acted? They're like, wow, I don't want to be imprisoned again. We're going to follow the Lord more closely. Maybe some did. But the vast majority of Israel fell away again. They got consumed again by the wrong things. And that's where Malachi came with some words from God that were some words of repentance. And um, let's look at our first verse. It's verse 7 that we have before us today. Malachi writes, and these are God's words that Malachi wrote down. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you Israelites, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. We talked about that just a moment ago. And then Malachi says the words of God, Return to me, and I will return to you. And you ask, how? How am I going to return? So the, the basic idea of return to me here is um, related to a, a churchy word that you've heard before, may not know exactly what it means. The, the churchy word is repentance. And that word has a two-pronged idea behind it. 
It's a changing of the heart to, to return to God in your heart for forgiveness and love. But it also is a returning to God with actions. All right? And when you hear someone say today, return to God, or when you felt in a season of your life that you are returning to God, what are some things you do to return to God? I'll let you think about that for a moment. I think the one that I see the most, and I'm not saying any of these are bad, because it is a good thing, it just may not uh, always be the full thing. One of the, the things I see the most with returning to God is coming back to church. And that's a great thing. We need to come back to church. I, I put a little caveat that, that one hour a week is not the only activity of returning to God, right? And, and you know that. But returning to church, good, good way to return to God. It's a good thing. Um, sometimes prayer, praying more, Bible study, I'm going to return to God. I'm going to get into the Bible more. I'm going to pray. Good thing, good thing. Um, sometimes it's changing a lifestyle, changing an attitude, changing a certain activity. Good things. How was God wanting the Israelites to return to him? They were wondering that question. Listen to what Malachi says, verse 8. How are we to return? Well, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. So, in this particular section, what God primarily was looking for, what he mentions is not go back to church. In this section, he's not mentioning get back into the, the Bible. He's not mentioning pray more. The way that Israel needed to return to God is probably a way that none of us probably think about much at all. It was with their offerings and their money and their giving. And God actually says, you're robbing me. Now, when we hear that, when we hear God say, you're robbing me, I think our initial reaction is to think about God as, as a beggar. You know, like, God needs me, he needs my offerings, he needs the things that he already gave me. I, um, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I am going to burst your, your bubble a little bit. If God wanted your stuff, that's his stuff, right? He would just take his stuff back. You see how he allowed that to happen to Job in the Bible, for those that, that know Job. You've maybe seen that in people's lives. If he really wanted your stuff, he would just take it. My point is this. When God told Israel to stop robbing me and to think about your finances, to think about what you have, it wasn't because he really wanted them to give more. That wasn't the, the, the real heart of it. You know what it was? That money reveals whose you are and our attitude, confidence, contentment, and security around money or around God reveals who's at the center of our hearts. And the reality is that God doesn't want our stuff. He doesn't want our stuff to have us. And so he speaks very strongly 
to these Israelites about the importance of considering again to return to him in the way they used the things that they have. That this wasn't an issue of their giving primarily. It was an issue of where their hearts were. In fact, if, if you don't you know, believe that God doesn't need your stuff, listen to how he writes uh, or what he says through the psalmist. God said, I, I don't have any need of a bull from your stall or the goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is already mine, and also the cattle on a thousand hills are already mine. And so the reality that God knows and that you struggle with, just like I do, is that money, financial things, tends to be the biggest rival for first place in American hearts. In fact, that's our next fill-in. Money, financial blessings, however you want to write that, is the biggest rival for first place in our hearts, especially in American culture, and it was true in the time of Malachi as well. Now, Malachi expands on this a little bit more. Or actually, God does through him. Listen to, to verse 9. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you. You're not receiving my blessing right now because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. So it wasn't that they weren't giving at all. It just was that they weren't giving in a way that showed that God was the master of their heart. We don't talk a lot about tithing here, hardly at all, because in the New Testament, we're not demanded to give a tithe. We give in a, a free response to what Jesus has done for us, and we're, we're free to give more, we're free to give less. Um, a tithe is 10%. And so what was happening in the time of Malachi is that the Israelites were kind of paying for all the stuff they needed for the month, and then when they got to what was left, it wasn't quite a tithe, not quite 10%, and so they weren't giving the full tithe. Um, in chapter 1 of Malachi, we see another example of what uh, God is speaking against um, when it came to their sacrifices. So a lot of times these sacrifices, unlike today, um, were animal sacrifices. And so they would go to their pens, and Malachi described in chapter 1, you can read it when you get home if you'd like, um, how they would go to their sheep pen and, and they would look for the sheep that had like three legs and one eye or the one that had like a tumor growing off its neck or the one because it was so diseased that they would never eat its meat anyway. And that was the joyful offering that they would then bring to God to give to him because they gave him something. And, and God is very blunt with the Israelites in chapter 1. And I'm going to share his bluntness with you in this verse. Um, next, next one. He writes in verse 10, Oh, that one of you, because of these deformed, diseased animals that you're sacrificing to me, oh, that one of you would just shut the temple doors so that you wouldn't light those useless fires on my altar because it's not about something. It's about the heart. I'm not, I'm not pleased with you. I'm not pleased with your offerings because... What is it? Money reveals whose you are and how you use it 
And where God is in that pecking order reveals whose you are and, and where your heart is. Now, we would never, we would never fall into this trap, would we? A um, number of years ago, and maybe you've heard this, uh, it was um, something online that I had found. Um, at Thanksgiving time, there's often this uh, butterball turkey hotline. Like, if you have questions about how to best cook a, a turkey, you can call and they'll give you tips. And I'm blessed that I don't have to call because Carrie does the, the cooking for me. Um, and there's also this thing called the internet, which maybe makes the, you know, the hotline not as important. But one guy who was manning the phones wrote about a true interaction he had with a lady that called. And she had called a, a number of years ago and had mentioned that she had been cleaning out her freezer and in the back of the freezer found a turkey that was about, she said, 25 years old. It had just been in the back of the freezer. She needed to clean out her freezer long before then. And her question was, is it okay to eat it? And the guy responded and said, now, okay, so if it's never been thawed, it's not going to hurt you or your family to eat. And then he said, but at the same time, I don't know if it's going to have much taste, and if it does, it's probably not going to taste very good. To which, and this is, again, a true story, she responded, oh, that's okay. I was just going to donate it to church anyway. (laughs) We, too, in our culture, struggle with not just giving, but giving the best. Giving first fruits, the Bible says. I'm going I'm to pick at our hearts just a little bit. And the reason I'm doing this is because maybe no one's ever said this before, and you just need to know it, and then you can digest it and chew on it at home. If the way that you have been giving back to the Lord, and it doesn't need to be here, it's not about Bethlehem, it's just about our hearts. If the way that you give back to the Lord is when the offering basket comes around to check to see what's in your wallet and give whatever in there, as long as it's not as big as a 50 or a 100, um, just giving what's in there, it's no different than the turkey lady from the Butterball Hotline. If the way that you've been giving the way that I've been giving, if the way that we've been giving is by paying for all the other things that we need or want every week in our budgets, and then giving what's left or a percentage of what's left, it's no different than what God is speaking against with the Israelites at the time of Malachi. We have flipped the list, if that's the way, and put everything else first, and God last, and God asks us to consider today through Malachi, what does that reveal about whose we are? Paul talks about this in, uh, to the Corinthians, and he gives a great way to consider how do I practically show with my actions where I want my heart to be? Listen to what Paul says. He says, each person, as you're giving, should give what he's decided in his heart to give. So there's two things I want to point you to. One is notice how Paul connects giving with the heart. We've talked about that a lot already this morning. And then the other thing he does is connect giving with planning 
a pre-deciding. And I've been thinking a lot about this this week, and if you feel it, you can think of an example for me that goes against what I'm going to say. Please share it with me after. I'm being serious because I want to know. But I've been thinking about this. I don't know if there is a way to be a first fruits giver without deciding ahead of time, without planning your offering. I've been thinking, I just, I don't know what that would be. If we haven't diligently thought about what we're giving back, I don't, I have not been able to think of a way that you could be a first fruits giver without thinking ahead of time. Because what happens if you don't think ahead of time is the list gets flipped, right? And it's what's ever left instead of what we're starting with. And then you might be wondering, (laughs) why? It's just God wanting my stuff again. Listen to this verse from James. God chose to give us birth, rebirth, faith, through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits to him. And that that verse really struck me this week. That God asks me to give him my first fruits, which he deserves, most definitely. And then he comes back and he calls me his first fruits, which I don't deserve. Not a moment. Talked about planning, how that shows first fruits giving. What kind of planning has God done for your salvation? Moments after the first sin in the Garden of, Get- Garden of Eden? God comes and says, there's going to be a Savior. And then about six, five thousand years later, that plan is carried out. In fact, the reason why Israel came back to Israel at the time of Malachi was because God was planning a salvation plan for his first fruits. And the Savior was going to be born in Israel, in Bethlehem. They needed to get back so that God's plan could occur and happen. And then, sure enough, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And then Jesus died. The plan fulfilled. And rose again, plan fulfilled. And God will, Jesus will come back again. I mean, it is amazing to think that a greedy schlub like me would be called first fruits by God. And if your heart is heavy today over anything, I want you to go home with with joy with this next fill-in, that you are undeservedly God's first fruits. He's got his list. First fruit means you and I, because of Christ, are at the top. He cares for us. He loves us. He wants nothing more than for us to be with him forever in heaven. Now, practically speaking, as now you consider how do I show with my giving or how I use what I have that God is first place in my life, if the list has been everything else and then God leftovers, so to speak, I recognize, practically speaking, it's hard to get him back here. And it might be months or a year or two before you get him to where 
financially you're able to get him and where, where he should be. And part of you might be skeptical as well about whether you can survive. <laughs> That's a whole other sermon too. But it's interesting how God ends this section with the Israelites. Verse 10. He writes, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and then test me, God says. Test me in this giving and see if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops and vines in your fields that will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Um, There are pastors and churches that will take a verse like this and they will misinterpret it and they will begin to teach um, God as piñata. We, we talk about God as beggar. That's not true. And then God as piñata is you give $1, he gives you $2. You give $5, you get more. Just keep you know, hitting the piñata until a whole lot of stuff comes out. You need to know this promise that you'll receive more when you give. This was specifically for the children of Israel. This is not in context for you and I. But you know what is true? God still says to you, test me on this. Test me. You don't think that that you can be happy by giving back to me more and and having me the center of your heart instead of those financial pursuits? Test me on this and see how I will take care of you. See how your life will be happier, more content. And maybe even maybe you'll have more. That's not my promise. It's amazing how when we let go open-handed, how he sometimes, or maybe it's just that we appreciate it more, seem to have more. God will take care of you. When you flip your list, he will take care of you then as well. So I need to just close with a couple of very, since we've been doing this in the series, very practical applications. It's our last two fill-ins. The first way that you can take this message about the heart and what we have and the heart and God, practically speaking, is plan a percentage that puts God first. I'm not going to tell you what that percentage is, but in your heart, what shows that God is first? If you've never talked about this with your spouse, you need to. It's a spiritual thing. It's a faith thing. And then the second one, this is very practical. Over the next three months, consider how might you be able to give a special gift to the paying off of our land near Lakeville North? our pledges that that time ends at the end of 2014, our pledges are about 30000 more than what we need or so. Um, we are currently those $60,000 or so behind what we need. Some of you um, just need a, needed a little reminder. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, here's what I pledge. You received a letter in the mail. We recognize some families. Things have changed from three years ago, and some can't give what they pledged, and that's okay as long as God is first, and, and some may be able to give more. But, but all of us, I think, together, what an opportunity for next steps for our ministry as we move forward. And a lot of you have asked, you know, when? 
Like we needed it yesterday. <laughs> when? I preach four times a week. When, right? You know, all those things. Um, the reality is we don't know. But two things, is tr- two things are true. One, our leadership is not going to put our church in a position where we're so financially strapped that we are in danger of not being good stewards. And number two, that the when is very much reliant on our giving so that we don't put ourselves in that position. Now, back to pedal boats. Um, I sat next to Addie. All right, she's not here, so I can talk about her. No, that's not, hey, wait, that's gossip. All right. Um, She's six years old, about this tall. Her legs, you know, they're six-year-old legs. Even when she pedaled, six-year-old Addie, it made a difference for me. (laughs) Honestly, I am so blessed to be able to pedal with all of you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, thank you for all that you give for this life and for next. Lord, sometimes our perception and our, the importance we place on the things of this life gets skewed. Yes, there are things we need, and then there are things we want. And Lord, help us to see the difference, and no matter what, to trust you. Lord, forgive us for our sins in this area and others, and inspire us through the fact that you've made us your first fruits to give first fruits back to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.